Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Derek. And I'm Ray. I'm Alex Reed. Hello, everybody. Oh, hello. Hello. Wow. <laughs> very quiet. Yes. Yeah, very quiet, very quiet. So, hello um, and welcome to Mossy Lit. Yeah. Yes. I'm Derek Owusu. I'm Alex Reeds. I'm Ray Furphy. And we love to welcome Lenny Henry to the show. Very nice to be here. Thank you. I'm in another world now. This is, <laughs> this is podcast land. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? Um, so we're, we're in a, basically a literature and film pop culture podcast. Uh, we record every week. We've been going consistently for about three years now. Every single week, uploading podcasts and mm-hmm. recording podcasts. And it's very tiring, but it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, yeah. Um, so what we'll do today is we will kind of give you guys a taste of what it feels like to listen to our podcast, kind of go through the structure of it in terms of just talking. Um, and then you never know, maybe you might leave and subscribe. Um, and we'll be talking to Lenny Henry about all the amazing things that he's been doing. Um, so yeah, guys, let's get started. So Alex. How has your Cheltenham been, guys? It's been what fun. You, what have you guys been up to? What have you been up to, Derek? I so I didn't manage to get to go to all of the events because a lot of them were sold out. Yeah. Obviously, so Lenny's event was sold out. But mine was rammed. Rammed, so. yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't get in mine. You couldn't get in. <laughs> I knew somebody. I could have got you in if you yeah. just called oh, me. Yeah. I could have got you in, but mine was rammed. Yeah, so I, I didn't get to go in there. But um, I managed to make it to a Carla and Anthony and Axaguru's com- in conversation, which was, was very... That was rammed as well, but luckily we got tickets, which was very, very interesting. You know, you watch a Carla on TV, what have, and I think, okay, you know, he's... I was, in my head, I was thinking, oh, maybe he's very, very media trained, but then... Seeing him talk is it's unreal. Yeah. Could just, you explain who Akala is for people who don't know? Yeah, so Akala is a, basically a rapper, writer, 
I believe he wrote plays and he founded um, the Hip Hop Shakespeare Company, which was trying to get, you know, young people in urban areas to engage with Shakespeare a lot better. And he's just released Natives, um, which is a Sunday Times bestseller. Amazing book as well. It's basically the history of empire and intertwined with his life as well growing up in, yeah. in London. Extraordinary guy. Yeah, yeah very, amazing. very interesting and a, guy. and a really big a- activist with regard to Grenfell too, yeah? Yes, mm. yes, he def- definitely is. Very, very outspoken. Um, takes a lot of people to task who think that they can talk him down because he's a rapper, but he really shows them what he's... Yeah. he's made, he made a, <laughs> he's really he smart. He really shows them something, yeah. Um, so that's been my highlight of, of Cheltenham so far. Um, yeah, I mean, we did, uh, did a panel yesterday on how we used our passions for books to yeah. bring it into the digital space, and um, that was amazing. I was on there with uh, uh, Simon Savage and... Um, Jen B. Campbell, mm-hmm. who are, blo- who are uh, book bloggers and vloggers on YouTube, and they, they do podcasts as well. It was hosted by Sarah Shafi, and it kind of it made me realize, like, kind of my journey through books and yeah. how we how we got here yeah. to this point. You know, what I mean, like creating the podcast because we all yeah. love books, we love reading, we love having these discussions, sort of thing. And um, that's that was one of the big highlights for yeah. me, just having that discussion and kind of working my way. Like, we had to work our way backwards and figure out where we started reading, what we loved, mm. and then like figuring out that you know we, as I, I mentioned the Harry Potter phase mentioned the fantasy book phase then like diverting into crime fiction and then broadening it out into general you fiction Harry, Harry Potter phase yeah we had a Harry Potter phase I had a Harry Potter phase that's man. great Ravenclaw. I read every single Harry Potter book to my daughter yeah and did all the voice. I think every actor did this did all the voices did damn Stephen Fry <laughs> <laughs> and um, I did everything until the Half-Blood Prince oh, man. and my daughter was like 14 or something and I started the book in about Four chapters in my da- my daughter said, "Dad, I've got this. Oh, I'm going to read this myself. All right." Yeah, and I was like, "Okay," <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to give it up. Yeah. So I'd be in a cupboard just reading it to myself. <laughs> um, but eventually, she just read the book herself. But I, I literally had to read the rest of the Harry Potter books to finish the cycle of yeah, stories yeah. Yeah. because I, because I realised that I'd become ad- addicted to it by reading it every night. Yeah. The Half Blood Prince is that a fourth? Is that a fourth one? The Deadly Half. No. I haven't read any of them. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I haven't read any of them. You've got a treat in store. Yeah. yeah. One, day, one day I'll read them all. You have one to do day. it. You have to do it. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go through yeah, them all. Yeah. 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 No, it's been a great week. Yesterday I was on a on the Man Booker, the Cheltenham Man Booker 1958 panel. Mm. And um, each uh, panelist had to champion a book that... Uh, was up for the 1958 Man Booker if man, the Man Booker Prize had um, wow. had been around, and it's great that I can officially say that I won. <laughs> um, wow, where's my round of applause? Thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I championed Achebe's 1984, um, um, Things Fall Apart, yeah. um, and it was amazing. That was, was such a funny brilliant. Yeah, it got really heated as well, because yeah. people were like, no. I can imagine, like, yeah. What other books were in the... Um, Iris Maddox, The Bell, um, Graham Greene's... Um, Man in Havana. Havana. Man in Havana. We had uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Bag of and... Oh, man. I forgot the other forget one. The, the other one, the reason why I forget, because it was knocked out, like, straight away. Yeah. So, so, is it Saturday? Was it Saturday? Saturday night, Sunday morning. Yeah, right. Saturday night, Sunday morning, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So what? That was, was, was yours. Well, um, I've never been to... I've been to Cheltenham before mm. to do shows here. And um, oh, the last, show, the last show I did here, mm. I did... Uh, Cheltenham Civic is there a Civic is it the Everman Theatre yeah. 
And I, I went on stage and I saw this black guy in the audience. And I was, like, kept, I was doing my show and I kept looking at him. And it was Tony. Does anybody know who Tony Atoria is? He had a hit record called, Are You Man Enough? Big and Bad Enough? Are You Man Enough? And I said, I'm sorry, what's your name? He said, You know who I am, Lenny. <laughs> sing it. How arrogant is that? And I bloody did sing it. And the audience were like, Why is Lenny singing to this guy? But it, it, was, um, it was a fantastic show. Yeah. So that's my other experience of Cheltenham. But this is my first time to be here in World of Tents and Books. Mm. And I'm loving it. I look because I read voraciously. So to come to a place where it's all about literature and books and seeing authors explain themselves is fantastic. Plus, I'm writing a memoir, yeah. which is going to be out next year. So to. I, saw, I just saw Simon Mayo, and we were talking about writing and the process, and it's, it's, it's a, a very rich experience being here, and I, I hope I get to come back next year when I, my book is out. Yeah. Amazing, fantastic, amazing. Fantastic. So very quickly, what's everybody reading at the moment? At the moment, yes. um, I'm, reading Martin, I'm reading Martin Luther King's um, A Gift of Love, and yeah, i got to say, it's one of his, it's, it's amazing, I think, so far. Um, it's kind of, I'm at the point, he talks about, you know, being tender-hearted, but having, like, a, a strong mind, and kind of, like, finding that balance. And if you find that balance, you've kind of reached a place of, like, genuine humanity, genuine love, genuine, yeah. all these different things. It doesn't mean that you have to be, like, so open and, like, not really, cons- like, not really mindful of certain things and how yeah. you position yourself in this world. Um, but, yeah, like, in, obviously, the way he writes, he writes as if he's making a speech and it, you can hear his voice echoing and booming at you really really yeah, 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 yeah. through the words and yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm reading um, at the minute and I know Derek's giving me some James Baldwin stuff that I need to get through mm. yeah actually so, so, yeah. so before, when Derek, we came yeah. here guys um, you just gave me a James Baldwin book yeah, yes, like, and I was like what's this about well because if anybody doesn't know Penguin I've now kind of reissuing the lesser known Baldwin books so yeah. these are the thin ones no, yeah, these are actually the actually, novels that he wrote, the, the oh, last yeah. novels he wrote. So just above my head and tell me how long the train's been gone, yeah. which is the lesser known ones. Then If Bill Street Could Talk, which is yeah. turned, being turned into a movie. Um, and they're just amazing. Penguin are doing a great job. Yeah, I work for Penguin, if you don't know. That's how I'm talking the books. <laughs> oh, it's like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they, There's they, an agenda here. Someone <laughs> wants a promotion. Um, no? Yeah, but they, they, are, they are literally amazing. Yeah, for, yeah. Are they? Derek's boss is in the audience. Right? <laughs> yeah. Baldwin. <laughs> Tell him about Baldwin. Um, yeah. right, but what are you reading there? Um, I'm reading, um, it's called, I think it's called Like a Thief in the Night by um, Slavoj Žižek. Mm-hmm. It's basically his rambling, talking about, you know, capitalism and, and how the failures of the left and so on and so on, as morbid. he says, and so on and so on. So, but it's because I basically, I watch a lot of videos of him where he talks and he's, he's such, he's so... To me, it sounds. It seems like he's so intelligent that he starts one sentence and he forgets what he's talking about. Then he starts, <laughs> he starts going on another thing, but then it all, he runs it all off and it actually makes sense. Yeah. So I thought, imagine what it would be like reading him. But funny enough, he's he's the way he writes is very clear. It's not the way he speaks. So I'm just reading that, and yeah, it's very very interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Lenny? What are you reading? Um, I'm, I read several books simultaneously. So I'm reading about Francis Ford. Coppola at the moment it's a biography but it's also a kind of a, a rundown of his films and the critical reaction to them and um, extraordinary guy was a kind of wonderkind when he started out and uh, ended up working for Roger Corman making exploitation films got his chance to work in his early 20s on a film called Dementia 13 which brought him into the public eye then he was given the opportunity to make a musical an old school musical called Finian's Rainbow mm. 
And uh, from that, he got to make a film called The Rain People, and it wasn't a, as big a success, but he did get to write a film called Patton. So not only was, a, was he a brilliant director, but he was also a highly regarded screenwriter. And this book is just this overview of his life and his career and his obsessions. And it's fascinating to, to read about this guy who was prepared to gamble his own money, his own soul and his own mental state on making the films that he really, really cared about and then when all that failed because he started his own movie studio called Zoetrope and it failed miserably um, he hired himself out as a very good director for hire and um, he managed to claw his way back to solvency and so the book is about that and it's 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 very very interesting I'm also I'm also dipping into and rereading Stephen King's on writing which if you're a writer embarking on a writing career I would say it's one of the best books about creativity there's ever been written it's about the craft mm. and it's also Stephen King writing about his in a, in a kind of refracted way about his upbringing and his childhood he's a very smart writer because he's sold all those books so why wouldn't he be yeah. <laughs> but he's also very good on craft yeah so um, we'll get into that a bit later, I'm, right? yeah I'm really enjoying that yeah. what am I reading so because I had to read um, all these man booker books that because Derek was initially supposed to be on the panel <laughs> And then he was like, read them. So I had to read them in a matter of days. Um, and I've actually just finished off Graham Greene's um, Our Man in Havana. And I actually loved it. Um, I thought it was hilarious and funny. Had you read it before? No. Oh. I hadn't read it before. Um, What's it about? So it's about this um, man called Wormold. And he lives in Cuba with his daughter, Millie. His wife left him. Very boring man who sells... Um, oh, what is it? Washing machines or Hoovers? It's vacuum. Vacuum. <laughs> Hoovers. A washing machine. <laughs> washing machine. Vacuum. vacuum. Uh. So, um, and then he gets approached by the um, MI6 to basically be a spy. Man doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> um, and he just started making up these elaborate tales so that he can keep his job, so that he can get money, so that he can um, provide his really materialistic, devout daughter. Um, with things that she wants. And one of the things that she wants is a horse, right? Um, <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. Um, sure and it's so weird that these elaborate tales started yeah. coming true in a way. So it was really hilarious, but it was a real, I guess, critique of secret service in Britain. And it was just, it was just really hilarious. I think, what did you think of the writing? Because I... I Do you like the writing? I don't like the way Graham Greene writes. Right. I, it, sometimes it feels like to me when he writes a sentence... There's a word that should connect the, the next word, but he misses it out. I think he, he just makes you want... He, I guess he wants you to make that assumption. So why well, would he well, put it? No, I, do, I, well, I personally... If that's what he's trying to do, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it lands where it was. I've tried to read two of his books. I tried Maybe to we read, can critique that on, um, yeah. on writing. And, the Power and the Glory, yeah. I tried to read that. I couldn't get on with that. What would Stephen King say about his writing? That would be quite interesting. That would be. That, that yeah. would be interesting, yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's what I read. And it's so weird because on the panel, I went to uh, the guy defending it I said I love this book and if I wasn't defending Achebe I'd defend your book and I went up on stage and I was like the book is horrible <laughs> yeah let's take it out really? <laughs> and he just looked at me like oh, and I was like Treat. I have to be strategic the game, the game is the game the game is the, the game, game is the you know game. Yeah. exactly so, <laughs> cool. that's what I'm reading right so okay 
So the book we chose this for this episode was uh, On Writing by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, it's a memoir. Um, so he has a lot of his backstory throughout the throughout the book, but he also has really salient tips on how to write well and the kind of tools that he uses to write well. But first of all, what do you guys think about the book? Um, I want to ask Lenny. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what why, do you why did the you book? why did you pick the book? Um, I've been doing a, a screenwriting PhD for the last six and a half years, okay. and um, one of the things I've been fascinated by is this industry that sprung up in the last 25 years about the act, the art, the craft of writing. So, you know, I I would imagine that uh, William Goldman, who wrote Adventures in the Screen Trade, is probably the person that started this idea of you can study screenwriting as a thing. You can can look at it, you know, here's how you write a script, here's how you write a scene, You, you, you get in late and you get out early. You know, William Goldman started to ascribe these little aphorisms and rules about screenwriting and ideas about how to make your screenplay tight and what it should look like on the page mm-hmm. and how characters work and how scenarios work and all that kind of stuff. And then there have been other books like um, Screen writing and screenplay and um, Save the Cat by Blake Snyder and they're all books that tell you how to write and give you a kind of a a kind of cake recipe mm. you start at page 30 there should be an inciting incident about 60 pages in there should be a midpoint mm. you know that you know there's all these rules about screenwriting and I'm fascinated by it because I'm a creative and I write and it feels to me like every writer you talk to says don't read those books yep. they don't work, they're rubbish yeah. there's no hard and fast rule book about how to write a screenplay mm-hmm. or how to write a novel, you've just got to put the work in and then work with somebody who an editor or somebody that cares about you to help you edit and craft and shape your book but actually by reading the methodologies of people like Stephen King or Flaubert or when you read about how these people write you do get a sense of actually there is a kind of a maybe there is a system Mm. of how to sit down and craft something maybe it would be good to read these people and learn from them and you know we say we stand on the shoulders of giants Mm. why wouldn't you read the Stephen King book on writing Stephen King sold millions of books Mm. so I started to dip into it over the last six and a half seven years and it's taught me a lot about short story writing about memoir writing he tends to write when he writes about himself he quotes a writer and I can't remember her name but he quotes this writer and he, and he says that she writes with pin sharp ac- accuracy about her past but when he writes it's like he's writing through a gauzy curtain mm-hmm. it's like he's, he's taking snapshots of his life rather than trying to tell you chapter and verse with pin sharp accuracy because his memory doesn't work like that and I like that kind of way. When I'm writing memoir now and I'm writing the things I can remember I'm not tr- I'm not going around talking to lots of people and trying to get 100 people to tell me exactly what my childhood was like mm. because I think that if you remember it mm. write it down and that's what you remember yeah. but if you if you go out and seek everybody's chapter and verse about your upbringing A, maybe they're wrong and B, maybe it's dull yeah. so, you know I think it's better to remember the things that stand out with that firework accuracy and get that down and then when you read it you think actually this is quite good so, yeah. so it's best to do that yeah. but Stephen King's thing 
I love is about the craft element of the writing, yeah. the toolbox. I love they, that bit. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I won't go into detail, but it's basically the the strunk and white. Is it strunk and white? It's the it's the it's the grammar stuff. Yeah. It's the toolbox of so nuts and bolts. How you shape sentences and yeah. why why paragraphs are the way they are, yeah. and the thing about the overuse of adverbs mm. and you've got to get rid of them. And what just, he said that the road to hell is paved with adverbs. adverbs. Yeah. It's that stuff, and it's just nuts and bolts yeah. and it's really handy and I'd recommend it to anybody anybody interested in writing I'd highly recommend it now because you said you're a creative when when you was writing your memoir did you ever remember something and think this is a bit dull let me just embellish it a little bit I think that's your job absolutely make yeah. it better or funnier or whatever yeah. everybody remembers things in a different way mm. and what, what I think people tend to do is go well it didn't happen like this but I'm going to spice it up I'm going to spice it up a bit <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. either in description or in characterization. you make it more exciting than yeah. it was because mm. who wants to hear the boring stuff you know yeah. mm. you, you you absolutely sharpen it but that's life isn't it life is boring sometimes sometimes you have to go through like I remember Bertrand Russell basically saying that when you I read remember a, that guy yeah when you <laughs> when you read a novel and it becomes boring you have to just carry on reading the boring stuff because that's what, what life is like life is interesting oh. say, cut that bit out yeah yeah <laughs> Because your novel is your novel is like real life, but with the boring bits cut out. And it's it's you know I've read something you know some guys write memoirs like that and you're plowing through them and you've got electrodes attached to your genitals shocking you awake every <laughs> every twenty minutes. But you know it's it's possible to read it. You know the 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 Viv Albertine memoir. Is, is fantastically salacious and gossip-filled mm. and a really fast read. You read it like that. Mm-hmm. that. You know, there are some... The George Best memoirs are the same. There are some where you just go, I've got to get... I can't wait to get to the mm-hmm. end of it. You know, and then, then when you're 50 pages from the end, you don't want it to finish. Yeah. Yeah. So I want, I, I want my memoir to be like that. I want it to be exciting and event-filled and sharp and funny. Mm. Uh, you know, I would... I would hate to burden the reader with a thing of where they feel like they've got to get through it. Yeah, and right. Stephen King's, when you read on writing, it's real short. Yeah. yeah. And it's got so much in it. Mm. And what a cool thing to leave behind. A, a short book about craft, a short essay on his memoirs, and then boom, let's get on with it. Yeah. And then he had a short a short story competition with a winner, and he prints the, the winner at the back of the book. It's great. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask, so in the book... Um, he talks about this toolbox and when he was um, going through it I realised things that I did in my writing and I was like oh crap I need to stop that when you were writing your memoir did you have a point where you were like oh Stephen King has talked about this maybe I should pull back on it what was the thing that he would have said no Lily that's crap take it out I think the good thing that he says is write for yourself first. Mm. So you write with the door closed and then when you've got to the end you open the door and and then everybody comes in. Mm. And he writes for his wife Tabitha. Mm. So Tabitha King reads every first draft of every Stephen King book. And uh, um, my partner Lisa reads everything I write and I've got a friend who's a literary editor that's lucky (laughs) (laughs) who also reads things that I write and just says and I've got a couple of other people so it's quite good to have he has this thing called ideal reader Mm. and I think that's a really good practice Mm. just just to have somebody who just 
because yeah that's cool or, or a bit worried about the bit in the middle yeah. or do you really want this out there in the world yeah, yeah. for instance if you're writing about your family do you want to say that about your dad yeah. do you want to say that about your mum maybe you should think about revising that yeah. so it's quite good to have a few people from different backgrounds you know they're like you like if, if it's me they're black or if it they're, or they're in the business or they're a friend who has no axe to grind mm-hmm. you know you don't want somebody who, who might be jealous of you or who has a secret beef with you yeah. you know because they're going to say something mean that crushes you that yeah. means you can't write yeah. and you don't want that you only want people in your ideal reader group who are going to encourage you and push you forward yeah. in your writing so I've tried to assemble a little squad like that and it's really helped me yeah, he does talk about actually getting people to who are going to read your work and read it and actual criticising actually give you like constructive feedback with it yeah. not just ones that will glance over it and be like oh this is this is fine just well done friends. you yeah. don't want that you know what yeah. I mean they wanna, they're going to go in and say well this could be different this could but he's also got experts he's got police guys who know about guns and yeah. about procedure he's got hospital people who know about medical stuff mm. so you it's it's within your wheelhouse to cultivate people who can help you when you need to do serious stuff and you, you need it fact-checked. But uh, it's research, you know, it's part of the research. Yeah. And he also talks about writing on drugs, mm. which is very handy, I okay. think. Mm. The idea of writing drunk or writing high. Mm. And then he talks about the thing of when you stop, the feeling of, can I write sober, Mm. which is a massive part of his life, you know. Mm. His family had an intervention to stop him taking drugs. And then once he did that, and and a lot of the books he talks about when he was high, they're fantastic books. Mm. And you think, oh my God, he wrote Carrie, and he wrote... Cujo and the Tommy Knockers when it was off his tits, mm. you know, and it's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So now when he's sober, you know, he's having to. I mean, he's got this massive inner critic saying, "Yeah, we should get high because this is slow, Steve." <laughs> yeah. And that's tough to get through, I think. Yeah. But, uh, what, I like, what I like about that is he's, he actually mentioned how there's this cultivated. Um, aesthetic that the creative is this guy who gets drunk at night each time and he was like actually you're not like a writer you're just you're just drunk right now um and he kind of dispelled the idea that for you to be creative you have to take drugs and you have to do all of these other things to fit the image of the creator i think he did that really well he was just like actually no mate you need to stop doing this because I mean, he even said that he'd, he's forgot he forgot some things when he wrote them. He's it's like, easy for him to say when he's written best-selling books off, yeah, off his that. tits. Do you know so what I mean? Some of the most best-selling books of exactly. all time. Yeah. yeah. It's easy for him to say that. Yeah. And I, I guess lots of creatives think, well, I've got to drink. I've got to get, I've got to get high. Yeah. To be able to produce To be able to work. produce work like that. And, and it's a thing, isn't it, with creatives of, uh, you know, I've got to go out and I've got to get drunk because yeah. Hemingway did that, mm. you know. And I think that's... The brave, the courageous thing is to just sit there with, with, right. a, with, with yourself and with your cup of tea and yeah. to, or your water or your coffee and just go, yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm gonna how can I, what can I do whilst just being me yeah. and not under influence? And dig deep and just try and find that feeling mm. you know yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that you have when you're drinking. Or... But it's the hard thing. to. It's, it is hard. This is the hard yards you've got to do, yeah. isn't it, yeah, yeah, yeah. when you're a writer? It's that thing of sitting with yourself. And they call it you know, gluing your bum to the seat. It's tenacity. Mm. And it's sitting there and it's just writing good or bad you have a bad day you have a good day but you try and get to the end you try and get your 500 pages done and then you see yep. you see what it is yeah yeah 
how do you how do you deal with like the criticism and rejection and and the like just because when you're writing something like we've all been through this like we've written something and we've guarded it and we thought yeah. oh I don't really want to have to share it with like Derek I don't want to share it with Ray just because I don't know they might say something you know shit. what I mean like, like how do you deal with, how do you kind of overcome that bit is it something that is just like well just I think the first thing is be proud that you finished something because lots yeah. of people start things and don't finish them so the first thing is be really proud of yourself um the criticism is going to come whenever happens mm. and I think you've got to you wrote it you must have wanted people to read it so you've got to take it on the chin when it comes and also take the Steve, the brilliant thing about that book is that Stephen King talks about the rejection slips he had a big spike in his office and every rejection he got he would just put a rejection on a spike yes, but, he would, but he would carry on and I think that eventually people started to say um, not for us but well done try and think about this yeah, yeah. When you, and they'd start giving him little tips and then eventually somebody would go yeah this is a good story we'll have this but it took him a long time and what you, th- what you think when you read these sections from one writing is my god if Stephen King went through all this rejection maybe I could yeah. maybe I could it encourages you to write mm. because he went through hell trying to get his things away um, and of course in those days when he was writing you had all these outlets for short stories now there's not so many I think it's different now because you can go online and you can upload your stories but back in the day you were sending things to Knave and Playboy and Penthouse trying to get your stuff published and there were also short story outlets too but it's different now I think you have to be very very tough and develop a thick skin when you're writing because you know what not everybody's going to like everything you do so you've got to get used to that because your fa- even your family this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be yeah. even your family are going to have beef with stuff yeah. you write <laughs> so you've got to be careful and you've got to, ha- you've got to have your creativity close to your heart because there's going to be some stray comment from somebody that you know and love mm. that might make you go oh, well I, I shouldn't write yeah. you've got to protect yourself from that stuff yeah. Yeah. so I mean, Stephen King, because he was sending stuff out and putting things on his rejection spike, he could kind of go, oh, I'm just going to carry on. But that's, that takes a lot of doing. Yeah. Surround yourself with people who are going to support you yeah. and make sure you carry on. Yeah. So spe- speaking of like developing thick skin, you know, Stephen King calls editors the divine. Now, whenever I've written something and I've sent it through to like my agent or an editor and they've come back with critiques, my first thing is like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, you know, I can't... Yeah, be, like, yeah, exactly, yeah. Do you, yeah, yeah. I, I like, I'm thinking, I know why, bro. I, this is why... You, oh, you just don't get it. Yeah. Now, do you ever feel like that when you get the edits back and you're just like, oh my God, like, am I, am I a shit writer? And my editor's just trying to turn me into a decent one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm working at Faber and Faber at the moment. Mm. And I, I wanted to work there because Siegfried Sassoon and Derek Walcott and people like that, you know, Siegfried Sassoon is still in print. Mm. And it just smells like they know what they're doing. Mm. And, and when you're in a place like that, you just, the editors are so smart. Mm. You've got to. Um, the fact is they've invited you to write for them mm. so I tend to listen to what, what my editor says because I just think well you're really smart and you know what you're doing and it's a collaboration in the end mm. I think that if you're on the other end of that if you're asking to be admitted into uh, if you're asking for a writing deal then 
take it on the chin if people give you criticisms because you're asking to be admitted into the Hall of Fame. Mm. You want to be one of their published writers. So it stands to reason that they're going to have things to say about your writing. They're giving up their time to comment. Mm. It's like when Stephen King said, oh yeah, and they started to write things. There was a form letter and then they would write in their own handwriting little notes. And once they start to write little notes in their own handwriting, you start to think, oh, they're getting engaged in my work. They're starting to connect with my work. They're not there yet, but, you know, but once once, you're, once you've been signed, then I think you've got to accept what people... It's fine to have the debate about it, yeah. but they know what they're doing and you should allow them to have a say in what you're doing because they want to get it over the line as much as you do. Mm. So what were some of the difficult bits to overcome when doing the memoir? Because there's always that one memory that you think, I don't really want to have to go there, but I might have to go there for the sake of... I'm on my I'm on my fourth or fifth draft now, and I handed the fifth draft in a couple of weeks ago, mm. and um, it was a really good feeling. It was like handing in the PhD, <laughs> but it was it was really kind of I've done that. But now the the tough thing is waiting for the comments. He wants a month to read it all yeah. and to make notes. He's not gonna he's not gonna do type notes he's going to do handwritten notes in the text he's going to sit and talk with me for a whole day mm. about it I've, I've never written a book like this before so this is all first time experience mm. I'm looking forward to it but I'm also dreading it yeah because it's a long it's a long manuscript I know there's going to be cuts um, and he's going to have an opinion about it and I have to I have to allow it. Mm. I have to allow his opinion because I want the book to be good mm. and I want to get it across the finish line. So I will accept cuts and I will accept rewrites because I want it to be as good as he wants it to be. Mm. Um, but it's tough to take people's criticisms. Yeah. You have to develop a thick skin. You have to not suck your teeth when they say things about your work. <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, you, have to, you have to be on the train. Yeah. Mm. So I'm going to get on the train and do the work. So I reckon I've got more work to do. I, mean, I think I'm sure there's another couple of drafts. It might yeah. never end until publishing. Yeah. You know, I might still be there just before publishing going... <laughs> But I'm sure there's going to be at least another two drafts of things, some fixing, some messing around. Yeah. And um, I'm looking forward to it, actually. I love it. I've loved it. Yeah. And there's things about your... You know, when you're writing a memoir, just some tips, it's really good to tell your family about stuff <laughs> because they might not want their business chatted out in the open yeah. for everybody to read. I had a thing when I did Danny in the Human Zoo yeah. where I talked about my upbringing and my parents and stuff. And I told stories about my, my parents and my siblings had a real problem with it. And I had to deal with that after the, after the piece had come out. And we're very private people. My family are very private and working class. And they had an issue with me writing a film script about our family. Yeah. It was like you've, you've divulged family secrets and you didn't... By the way, I sent them all a script. Yeah. And they all read it, or they told me they'd all read it. Yeah. But when they watched it on television, they went, oh, we didn't know you were going to talk about this. <laughs> you're, t- you're chatting the family business. Um, so I had to sit down with everybody and say, look, you know, you all read the script. You all told me you'd read it. Yeah. And I told you what was going to happen. In- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And you told me it was all right. And now you're saying it's not all right. And they had the pressure up on their doorsteps and oh, people, yeah. people bothering them at work and stuff. Yeah. And so it was a really tough time to get through. Yeah. But um, with this... I'm sending the next manuscript to all my siblings and they've all got to read it and they've all got to approve it before I go to the next stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a really big thing. What do you want after, like, once you've reached that finish line and it comes out, what is it that you want each reader coming to the memoir? What do you want them to leave thinking or feeling or what effect do you want this memoir to have in, yeah. the, in the world? I love books. And I love getting lost in somebody else's story. I read a lot of memoirs, and um, I'm interested in the persnickety detail that people bring to telling the story of their life. I'm interested in obstacles, how people overcome things. Mm. You hit a glass wall or a glass ceiling, and, you know, particularly when you're a person of colour, you know, the story of how you overcame Long Walk to Freedom, Mandela, Mm. you know... These stories are important and they are, you know, the Martin Luther King story, Malcolm X biography, the thing of overcoming a jail sentence uh, or enduring an assassination attempt or going through a, a, a religious change in life or whatever. These things are important and fascinating to read about. And I would like it if people were... If people got lost in my story and didn't want it to end, because these are my favourite books, you know, you get to the end, with the, like, you get to the kind of three quarters of the way through Dombey and Son, and you don't want it to end, or, you know, a Stephen, the best, one of the best Stephen King books is The Stand, yeah. and I kept getting a third of the way through and then stopping and rereading from the beginning because <laughs> I didn't want it to finish, mm-hmm. or you know things put, fall apart yeah. or white teeth mm-hmm. or, or something you read these books and, or On Beauty by Zadie Smith oh my god yeah. you get about halfway through and go I love this book yeah. I don't want it to end I want that for my book yeah. and it might be that people go yeah yeah I read a, I read a bit of it it was alright but I'm going to keep writing until people do that I'm not going to give up yeah okay I want, I want you to just kind of compare writing jokes and comedy sketches to the writing process of writing a memoir 
So, for example, in, in my mind, I always think of F. Scott Fitzgerald when he wrote The Great Gatsby. The last few lines, he must have wrote those and thought, this is the shit. Do you, do you ever, because, and when you're writing a joke. Just drop the pen. Yeah, just drop the <laughs> mic drop, exactly. Um, <laughs> this is the joke. <laughs> when you're writing a joke, in your head, you must think, this is funny. When you was writing the memoir, did you ever write like a paragraph or a few lines and think, this is good shit? Um, well, certainly in the first instance with a joke, what's great about writing jokes is you rarely, there's only people like Victoria Wood or Ben Elton that write jokes on their own. Uh, I think Ramesh Ranganathan writes everything and then sits in a room for a couple of days with, a, with another writer. But most people who do comedy sit in a, in a group like this mm. and they go, what about this? What about that? And then if people laugh, that's the joke that goes on the page. Okay. Generally, when you're writing a memoir or a, a novel or something, you're on your own in a room eating hobnobs and watching <laughs> blockbusters on the telly and hoping that you get struck by inspiration. And I think, yeah, there's a great bit in uh, Cold Water Farm is that the name of the book? Cold Comfort Palm. Cold Comfort Palm, where, um, is it Stella Gibbons? Yeah. She, she puts an asterisk next to a couple of paragraphs, and I think, she, I think it's the equivalent of, this is really good writing. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this shit is deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she puts an asterisk by her favourite um, passages. And I don't do that, mm. but I, I know if something makes if I'm smiling when I'm writing yeah. I'm enjoying the writing process mm. and I know it's going to be alright yeah. I know it's funny but if it's a grind I kind of know that oh I might have to go through this with the editor because this bit this was this bit was difficult yeah. right. but jokes is jokes is jokes and usually you, you know if a joke is funny yeah. I, use, I usually know when something's going to bring down the house <laughs> just because it's the, the surprise of it or the percussive nature of the, of the way you've written it but um, with writing I like Annie Prue you know who wrote Brokeback Mountain and um, The Shipping Forecast and she writes sentences like she's cracking a whip you know it's like the, the sentences crackle with energy and they're beautifully written and you know you just think you, write, you read it and you just go oh, I'm never going to write like this yeah. so you just got to write the best you can mm. you've got to be you Yeah. so now I'm thinking I've read all these books I love all these people but I've, got, I've just got to write like me now yeah. I'm not my Angelou I'm me yeah. so the thing to do is write like you and I then get that a lot. let I'll somebody read, else yeah. pick the bones out of it Yeah. I'll read um, Oscar Wilde just before I start writing because I'm like I need that energy to come to me Oscar Wilde energy yeah I, I love a good Oscar Wilde good coming. luck yeah. good luck yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> Um, okay, so what I, I wanted to ask you is, um, Stephen King talks about how don't watch television, right? Get off your phone, Get off people. your phones. However, I uh, recently watched Wildish Gambino, oh. um, um, your video where you talk about... This is the TV. This is the, the TV, TV. Yeah. okay? And obviously it's based off of Childish Gambino's This Is America video. And my thing is, I this is the TV was quite to me it was quite like, oh man, remember when we used to sit down with the whole family and watch television? Yeah. And now kids are just on their phones. But how would you justify that to Stephen King, who says, get off the television and actually write? Stephen King is a, a is a person of a certain age. That's the first thing I'd say. Yeah. I, I think there's so much inspirational stuff going on on television. You've got to have some, you've got to be judicious and pick carefully. But you know, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, you can't dis- mm. the, wire. the Wire. You yeah. can't discount these things, and they're culturally significant. You've got to watch these things. Yeah. 
The Wire is the most black people in a drama created by white people I've ever seen. <laughs> and they've written it with some accuracy and they've, and they've worked within the community, mm. uh, you know, these guys are journalists and policemen and they've tried to apply their their knowledge of police procedural and journalistic writing to to the problems and issues of the black community in a place with the highest murder rate in America. Mm. And they've come out with something that is culturally significant. Why wouldn't you watch that? Breaking Bad, same, Sopranos, the same. So I think that, you know, in this day and age, people will binge watch things and catch up. People don't watch television the way they used to. Yeah. Mm. Television's changed, and this is the TV, was about the way television has changed and the fact that we need to move the needle along in the conversation about why aren't we more inclusive with our, with our television? Why aren't there more black people and brown people on television, more women on television? When is that going to change? Apart from Doctor Who, mm. I watch telly, and I still feel like it's tokenistic when I watch television. Yeah. Mm. It's really difficult. And it's because behind the scenes there aren't enough people making decisions about what we watch. From there aren't enough people of colour, there aren't enough women, there aren't enough gay people, mm. it's there aren't enough people of alternate gender or alternate religion. It's just very much the patriarchy. It's pale, male, stale and white. It's dominant culture. That's who's in charge. Yeah. And until that changes even a little bit, television is going to remain the same as it's always been. Yeah. Uh, what's been great in the last few years while we've been campaigning about this stuff is that it's moved along a little bit so that the conversation has changed. Um, in publishing, it's worse. Mm-hmm. In publishing, it's really bad behind the scenes. Yeah. Editors, and, editors and publishers and the guys who get to choose who writes what. You know, there's a black section, there's an African section, yeah. there's a ghetto section, mm. but there's no general thing of, yeah, come on, let's all yeah. do something. Yeah. Yeah. I found this kid who's a brilliant writer and who's born in Britain and he's black, but, he's not, but he writes like F. Scott Fitzgerald or he writes like there's none of that mm. they, they, you're in a genre or you're in a niche yeah. and you stay there mm. so you've got black writers workshop you've got African writers workshop or you've got the you got the Jamaican the Afro-Caribbean writers there isn't this sense of eating at the big table yeah. and until we get black and brown editors and publishers and yeah. thinkers and creatives, you're not going to get that change. So that's the thing to fight for. Yeah. And um, that's what we're fighting for in the television and film industry. And these are transferable things, you know. Um, when, you, when you look at what's happening in the city and in banks, they're very aware that they need to be diverse and representative because they do business with the world. Mm. You know, they, they are global businesses. So I think publishing and television and film are global businesses too. Yeah. And so they need to catch up. Mm-hmm. They need to catch up. Yeah. Because banks and insurance and, and things are leaving the creative industries behind and that's I, mental. I guess the I guess that corporate side is more so thinking there's a market here for people who are not straight males essentially. But in the publishing world, the marketing for I guess black people is well, let's tell them the the black struggle story. Maybe that's what they're into. Maybe if we could get a nice sla- another slave book, they'll buy that. But if it's just any other book, the slave. <laughs> maybe they won't. And I think what give them another slave book, they'll buy that. <laughs> Those black readers. <laughs> so I guess is is your take that there should be a change from inside the infrastructure rather than just putting out another black story? Infrastructure is everything because once you once you have if you can't 
see it, you can't be it. Mm. So if you're an author and you walk into a meeting and you're the only person of colour in the room, you're sitting there going, okay, fine. And what I find with creativity and mm. going into a room that is predominantly white is that you're always in an act of translation or interpretation. Yeah. So you're always having to explain yourself as a writer. And nobody asks, nobody says to white writers, this is, this is another white story. Nobody says that. Whereas with black writers, if you're writing a story about coming from the ends or if you're writing a slavery story or or if yeah. you're writing a Windrush story, you know... We've got another one for that, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like you get pushed into that niche because that's what they expect. Yeah. But, you know, what, what did I read the other day? I read, a, I read an extraordinary book called My Darling Something about a survivalist with a daughter and it's an incredibly abusive relationship. And it was... I can't imagine them... I can't imagine that being a black writer because they just don't expect us to write stories like that. Mm. So I think that within the publishing industry, you know, the more you open up who's behind the scene as the publishers, the writers, the owners, the more these, these areas are opened out, they will get the chance to find people who aren't just writing that particular race-specific story. You will get stories about survivalists and bartenders and, you know, as Rinsley Kane says in his play Misty, yes. um, stories about rom-coms where couples ride a bike through the park in the sunshine. Why yeah. can't I have a book about riding a book in the sunshine? <laughs> Where's my rom-com? Yeah. You know, and the fact of the matter is, Mike Gale is writing rom-coms, but at the moment, nobody's picking them up, nobody's adapting them to make them into movies because... Yeah. Mm. it's perceived that there isn't an interest you know who's going to watch that and I think there's a big audience for that why wouldn't you watch that yeah. in America you know you get waiting to exhale and brown sugar and yeah. there's an audience for that but it's, well, it feels like not enough interest has well, been still, shown in those stories in Britain they're, yeah. not, they're still not respected though like brown sugar and um, those kind of black rom-coms as well because they're not kind of pitted a lot not not they're kind of not distributed to like many like cinemas as well. They're kind of like put into smaller ones. So well, kind of... somebody's watching them because yeah. Tyler Perry has his own jet. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Exactly. exactly. Somebody's exactly. watching these movies. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, that you could have a sim- You know, there is a big appetite. I think. Mm. Yeah. For look at you guys. You're a black podcast. There's a big appetite for alternate entertainment. Mm. Yeah. There's a big appetite for multicultural entertainment. People are interested in cultural whatever they tell you mm. people are interested in cultural exchange mm. you know look at you guys look at if Beale Street could talk look at Moonlight mm. you know Ava DuVernay you know Lee Daniels Moon, I loved Moonlight I watched it in Brooklyn it was a mostly white audience loving it giving a standing ovation at the end we are interested in each other's story we grow up within communities we observe each other we learn about each other mm. and I think that Tundi Ikoli was asked how come you're so good at writing white people and Tundi said I grew up with white people <laughs> why wouldn't I know how to write white people they're my friends my family whatever you know we live in a world where we are observing each other yeah. and cultural exchanging everything all the time yeah. we know about stuff and allow us the privilege of showing you how cool we are yeah. showing you how good we are showing you that we're as good as anybody else that's all we want and I'm you know when I when I see that Mallory Blackman is going to write on Doctor Who I think wow we're getting there yeah. we're getting somewhere that's great yeah. now we just have to get some people writing on Endeavour <laughs> and open all hours yeah. or something 
Let's change that. Oh, God. Let's change that. Mm. Let's have some brothers in. <laughs> More brothers. They never know how to write the black family in EastEnders. Oh, my God. The people are, black people are always vexed. EastEnders is on, oh, God. We never know what to say about it. I'm making a cup of tea. Do you want a cup of tea? Get out of my house. Get out of my pub. <laughs> but we can do that. We can write that. We can write get out of my pub. Mm. <laughs> For years, Coronation Street was the only oh, street where there was a corner shop with no black people in it. I was like, <laughs> It was the only street yeah. in England where there was no Indian people running it. I was like, where's the Indian guy? <laughs> they changed it recently, but it was for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, things are changing. And, um, you know, as my friend Marcus Ryder said repeatedly, you know, you keep saying wait and see. Well, I've waited and I'm seeing. Mm. You know, when is it going to change? Yeah. And it's going to change when the infrastructure changes, and that's yeah. what you're fighting for. Yeah. So, obviously, you you know, you've been in the industry for a very very long time and um, we once did a podcast with Mallory Blackman and she basically said that the kind of the, the how diversity is now trending she said she's seen it before so she's not getting excited about it this time she just feels like okay diversity is trending again blah 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 it's going to go away then in what five ten, ten years, more years ten it's going to come time. back again but, but then other people have said this time it feels a bit different I mean, I want to ask, how do you, you feel, feel about it? Yeah. Um, since being signed to write a memoir for Faber and Faber, I've had lots of letters and digital com- conversations about publishing and the lack of diversity within publishing. And um, recently there was a, some data. We live in a world of big data. And somebody sent this... Somebody in the publishing industry um, did some rep- research about... BAME, Blacks, Asians, Minority Ethnics in the world of publishing and the the results were shocking uh, similarly in the world of television and film there's a thing called Directors UK where this new information has come out where like 3% of the directors in the TV and film industry are people of disgraceful 3% naught percent in shiny floor television shows like minimal percentage in dramas, mm. I mean in high end dramas none um, and in um, in all these other transferable industries, people are doing, it seems like people really respect the numbers. They really respect statistics. You know, between 2012 and 2015, um, we found via skill set that uh, some people did a research and they did a snapshot of the industry. And something like 39% of black, Asian, minority, ethnic people had left the industry. Um, and where for every two people, no, for every one black person that left the industry, two white people were employed in the film and television industry. And if 15% of the nation is BAME, 40% of London is BAME, and most of the industry is in London. So that's, these figures are terrible. So it was like a real wake-up call for the entire industry. So since then... Uh, since the activism started, the BFI now have a system, a three-tick system, whereby you have to tick all three things in order to get your film made. Um, so either by subject matter or director or cast, mm. two of those have to be diverse, otherwise you're not going to get your movie made. Stuart Murphy came to a... a um, he, when he was in charge of Sky Television, came to a meeting at BAFTA and heard all these vexed people talking about the lack of representation in the TV and film industry. And he went back to Sky and said, we're going to have targets. 
20% of writers, 20% producers, 20% everything, and we're going to try and fulfill these by 2020. And it's been difficult. Quotas are easy. Quotas, you can get the guy from IT, the one of the cleaning ladies and a dinner lady, and you can, <laughs> <laughs> you can say, look, look we fulfilled IT. our quota. <laughs> we got uh, the guy from IT and the car park guy. But with targets, you've got to have the real people, otherwise yeah. it doesn't work. So Sky are trying to do that. Channel 4 did this 360 thing, which is like a four-foot-thick guideline of what they've got to try and achieve with diversity in the next five years. People are talking about it. People are trying to do it and as long as people are talking about it I'm happy mm. we need like Black Lives Matter like you know hashtag me too the pussy riot thing we're all talking about these things that are affecting us and that are making us angry and it's good vomit it out get it out there nothing changes without conversation nothing changes without people going do you know what I'm pissed off about this and I'm going to say something I'm going to be brave enough to say something mm. people are opening their mouth and they're publishing online mm. they're bypassing editors yeah. they're bypassing publishing houses or television stations you don't have to go on audition anymore you can just go I think this about this subject mm. and I'm going to make a podcast. Boom. So while young people are doing that, while people are just uploading things and saying what's on their mind, while we're taking the advantage of this multi-platform world we're living in, I think be activist, be loud, be annoying. Because as it said in Sylvia, which is a musical about Emmeline Pankhurst, nobody takes any notice of the the dutiful person. They take notice of the noisy person who's always moaning. So be the person that's always moaning, moaning and making themselves heard because eventually they've got to listen to you. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Um, well, I guess it's a good time for questions if anybody has some questions they want to ask us or ask Lenny. Ah, the lights are on! Ah. <laughs> Is this... Oh, we've got a question right in the middle, yeah? Yeah, there. Hi. The, the mic's coming. Mic's to coming you. to you. Do the first sixteen bars of Eric B for president, and I will <laughs> literally buy you a drink. <laughs> I'm just joking. Carry on. <laughs> um, funny, I, though, right? um, it's very interesting to hear actors writing memoirs. We've just come from Sally Field, who's written her own memoir you like as well. Me. You really like me. <laughs> Well, and she talked about um, she would reenact her childhood. That's how she sort of brought things back that she didn't um, remember. Um, you've talked about sort of just talking about the things that you that you do remember. I wanted to ask you a question: of Why are you writing it? Is it cathartic? Are you writing it for you, or are you writing it for us? Um. I think, as with all the best things, if you start off writing it for you and you find it interesting, hopefully people reading it will find it interesting too. Uh, It it was the right time, I think. I I was hitting a big birthday. And it's sort of like, I think your past can be a bit of a a burden, you know, if if things happen to you when you when you're growing up, that you're still carrying around as hurts and slights. You You can literally exercise demons by even if you just keep a journal by vomiting it out you can make yourself feel better about things and I grew up in a time of 
I grew up in interesting times. There was racism. You know, I'm writing about times when, in Smethwick, a guy got voted in under the banner, if you want a nigger for a neighbour, vote Labour. Um, in 60, whenever it was, Enoch Powell had just made a speech about there being rivers of blood and prophesying that the black man will hold the whip hand over the... You know, the, you know there were times when... My brother used to walk past walls that said, keep Britain white. When my mother arrived in, 19, in the mid-1950s, there were signs in windows, in every window, that said, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. My mum would walk down the street and people would ask her where her tail was. So I carry that. So for me to write a book about this period of my life and the first book, which is called Who Am I Again?, um, is about my mum's life and leads up to me winning new faces and shortly after that. And it's been a huge exhumation of the past. And I hope people find it interesting. To me, it's a kind of... um, It's like a long windrush, you know? There's, there's somebody, I think Hobsbawm wrote about the long, the long 50s or the long 40s, the long shadow that, that an era casts. And for me, Windrush casts a long shadow. Mm. My mum arrived 10 years later and she experienced not everything that the Windrush people experienced, but she experienced a lot. You know, there were riots in Dudley because of racism and race riots and stuff. So she lived through all of that. My brothers experienced racism and had fights on the street with teddy boys when they arrived. You know, when I was at school, I had a fight nearly every day with some guy who would call me a racist name as I walked into school. So to write about these things, it's almost like you're breathing out at last. You're exhaling. You're going, oh, I got rid of that bit of poison there. Um, And the great thing is that... With hindsight, you can have a bit of a sense of humour about this stuff. So I can write around it. I can have an opinion about it that's, that's not po-faced, that's not depressed. I can be funny about it whilst writing about something terrible. And somebody, somebody once said, comedy is tragedy, but with tra- tragedy plus time equals comedy. And I think that's true. You can look back and go, wasn't so bad. Even if it was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Any more questions? Oh, that's fine. Bit of a personal question, so I don't know if you want to answer it, but I've always wondered whether you've ever had any, as a psychotherapist, whether you've ever had any counselling or to process all that. That's what I've always wondered, really, because you're very into what happened in your childhood and it's had such an impact and I'm just wondering if there's ever been a time that you've gone and dealt, you know, spoken about that personally. You might not want to say that. I think everybody's had therapy, haven't they? (laughs) (laughs) Huh? Not in Cheltenham. (laughs) (laughs) The unexamined life. (laughs) I'd rather not know about that, actually. I'm from Cheltenham. We don't do things like that here. (laughs) I mean, interestingly, growing up in the Midlands, um, particularly if you're black and working class, it's not particularly a thing that people... People don't talk about their... You know, your mates just kind of go, just have a drink and, you know. Um, but when my mum passed away, I was, I was really affected by it and I needed to offload. So I did go and see a grief counsellor for a very long time. I, I, I saw somebody for two years and, and talked to somebody for... I talked to somebody for twice a week because it was just something I found hard to quantify. My mum was like, I didn't realise it, but she was so important to me. 
But it was like somebody had pulled this cosmic carpet from beneath my feet. Mm. And I felt like I was free-falling. But by the way, while this was happening, I was working, I was doing stuff. And it's amazing, you know, you can get through an awful... I didn't let it crush me. And and our family are very tight. So we were able to lean on each other and depend on each other and talk to each other. But I was able to get through a terrible time with therapy, but also with my family. Mm. We were very, very tight and we talked to each other all the time about it. So um, it was a mixture of the two things, really. And I just one more question. We're not allowed any more questions. (laughs) Wonder whether you have a favourite quote from your books. From my book. Well, from a book that you've read. That's a tough question. That's a tough question. Mm. There's so many. There's too many, really. Goethe talks about there being Goethe, Gerda. Goethe, Goethe, Goethe. It looks like Goeth. <laughs> it looks like Goeth on the page, but I think you say Goethe or Goethe. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> it talks about there being magic in the act of creation. Yeah. And um, I think he's right. But I think there's magic in finishing things. And I never used to finish anything. So in the spirit of Goethe, I'm going to say that there is magic in, in the act of creation, but there's also magic in getting to the end. Because if you don't get to the end, how do you know what you got? Mm. So I'm going to say, you look at that quote. It's online. Everybody says it. But this act, the act of creation is magical. But I think the act of finishing something is even more magical. Mm. Because now you've got something to... Now you've got some currency. Now you can show your friends and your family and go, I wrote that, mm-hmm. or I, I made this song, or I mm-hmm. wrote this movie. Have a read, tell me what you think. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to crush me for? Mm. But at least you finished it. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. there's plenty of people who got halfway through and went, nah. Yeah. There's plenty of people who were talking big and then never went on stage and did 10 minutes at the yeah. comedy store. Couldn't get, you know, said they were going to do the open mic and then bottled it at the last minute. Mm. But imagine actually doing the open mic and doing five minutes and they clapped or, you know, two of the jokes went really well or your short story got published and somebody said a nice thing. Yeah. You know, this is important. So you've got to do that. You've got to believe in yourself. Mm. And I think any way you can do that, if you need therapy or you can talk to a best mate, anybody who'll give you some support, yeah. do that. That's what you've got to do. Mm. Cool. So we have time for one more question. One more question, then I've got to get out of here. Yeah. Wow, okay. Um, come on, Pitt. Um, so you all uh, you all read books a lot. Um, do you have any tips on how to get through um, the amount of books that you read? Um, what do you do? Tips. Boy, I, how many books do you read a week? Thank you. I have to read around two to three. A you week? Two to yeah. three books a I week? I have to because if I'm at work, because I work on the books pages, so I have to try and get through like... But you're not reading them cover to cover. You're scanning it. I have to, I have to <laughs> get through that. <laughs> okay. Then we've we got one for the show. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I try to read and I try to read one for myself. But how do you do it? 
I try to give myself deadlines. I try to say I want to try and read it oh. between now and then. Yeah. And then it's a job now, isn't it? Yeah, it's just become that. What do you do? What I, what I used to do actually when I was um, at university and I used to have work at 12 o'clock and I'd finish at five. So yeah. I used to wake up at nine, say I'm going to read 40 pages until 10. Then I'll get ready to go to work. And as soon as I get home from work, then I'll read another 40 pages. And then that would be... That my, sounds organised. That would be my cycle, yeah. And you can plough through it. Yeah, you can plough through the books like that, yeah. yeah. Get up earlier. Yeah, yeah, get up, get up earlier and get up and, earlier and, and, and read for an hour. Exactly. But yeah. also, what I would say is buy novellas and read those because they still count. You could say I've read three books this <laughs> week, <laughs> even if they were seventy pages long. Yeah. You know, it still counts. Right? I would also say make sure that like, carry a book everywhere you go yeah. and find those little tiny opportunities. They could be waiting for an Uber or like just before you're going to eat, mm. or you're waiting for some Netflix show to load or some other show. That you know Stephen King. Stephen King has a book everywhere with him yeah. it's probably one of the reasons he got run over by a car this is what I was saying I, I put my phone away wasn't looking where he was going yeah. I put my phone away the other day and I was walking down I was looking around everybody has their phones and I'm walking with my book in my hand so I'm like trying to navigate yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the same but why are you doing that why are you walking down the road because I'm trying to finish the book because I need to finish yeah. it at a particular time it's a damn shame <laughs> also make sure so like I normally carry just one book, but then I remember Derek needs to carry quite a few books with you, and I'm like, okay, maybe I need to carry a few books because, yeah. like, maybe that would help me. Get but actually, bag. that just makes me even more indecisive because I'm like, okay, I have three books. Which one do I choose? Um, but be very disciplined because sometimes yeah. you're not in the mood to read it, but it depends mm. on how you want to read, whether you want to be able to say, I finished this book, or you just need to be in the mood. Have you, have you got a Kindle on your phone? Get Kindle on your phone. phone. Yeah, it's great. You read much more than you thought you were going to read. You're on the tube or the train or something, and you're just you're reading it, and you can really plough through on Kindle. It's great. Because people would take out their phones and go on social media and um, read through the timeline or scroll through Instagram or whatever. But if you can kind of like take that habit and put it into the Kindle app, yeah, you're going to get through. Get Kindle on your phone; it'll change your life. Definitely. I had to read. um, Middle March. Oh. And I just couldn't... Sorry. I just couldn't get through it. Oh, no. And what I had to do was I got an audio book. Okay. And there was an actor, an actress reading it. And it was so annoying because they weren't very good. Mm. <laughs> and I was reading along with it because I was so vexed. And then... I got to 100 pages and went, oh, I've got this now. <laughs> and then I carried on reading. But an audio book for the first 100 pages of a difficult book mm. is a really good thing to discipline yourself. But audio books can be brilliant. They're amazing. I highly audio recommend audiobooks. mine. I, 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Nancy Boys, uh, my name is Leon. Please yeah. buy them. They're marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so that's all we have time yeah. for today. But we thank everyone for coming and we've been mostly lit. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Our shows every Monday um, on Twitter, we're at Mostly Lit. Instagram, we're at Mostly Lit Pod. Um, and then you can find out everything that we're doing from there on. Um, but yeah, each Monday we put a show out. So make sure you listen. iTunes, Google Play, wherever. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Really nice Thank to Thank you.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.